Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we did our best to give an overview of the Edo period of Japan, which a 75-minute show really can't do justice to, but uh, we also covered the gunboat diplomacy of mid-19th century America and the socio-political turmoil it caused within Japan, culminating in civil war and the restoration of the emperor as practical head of state. This week, we'll talk about how the young Meiji emperor went about reshaping Japan from a feudal society into one that would challenge every idea of superiority held by Europeans in the early 20th century. Let's begin. All right, we're here on HI101 with James Mitchell. How you doing? Great. How are you? Not too bad. Excellent. So last time we talked uh, a lot about the Edo period of Japan, kind of 1600 to... 1868, really, but I mean that that last number is a little bit fuzzy, and kind of the the tradi- the more traditional feudal society that was t- torn down in the Meiji Restoration. Well, let's talk about what they started building back up after they went through all of that that warfare. Which I mean, in the grand scheme of things, for like severe political change, really wasn't that bad. There was a fairly short war. I mean. Yeah, it was a war. There were still some casualties on all sides, obviously, but it lasted less than a year before the Meiji Emperor was installed, and things more or less went back to normal. Interesting. And not not as though there weren't further uprisings, but, I mean, that's that's super fast for something like that to turn around. However, I, I would say that that's pretty characteristic of the late 19th century, right? Looking at, like, German unification, Italian unification. That's a great point. Uh, fought... With very short, comparatively short. Let's yeah, no, no, that's, that, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> always with, with the uh, always with the um, qualifiers. The qualifiers are important. Yeah, but yeah, with comparatively short wars that had comparatively few casualties, mm-hmm. they were all really about sort of showing dominance and trying to get people to come to your side. Uh, particularly in the case of the Prussians, right? So mm-hmm. going and beating the the Austrians mm-hmm. in. Pretty much just one battle, mm-hmm. beating the French in pretty much one battle at Sedan. Yeah, that was pretty much it. Yeah. Uh, so the ability to sort of like turn things very quickly and then sort of like reestablish power. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious as to what degree nationalism would have been something that would have influenced the transformation of Japan in the late 19th century, or well, some permutation of nationalism. Oh, I mean, it was it was key to basically everything that happened the question that was at stake during this civil war was what does nationalism mean to japan like what like how should our nationalism look okay what does it mean to be japanese because 
really what happened when Commodore Perry sailed into that bay was that their idea of what it meant to be Japanese was severely shaken. Because before that, what it meant to be Japanese was to be isolationist, to have this very carefully planned out society that was very quiet. Yes. You know, like it was, they felt like they had gotten to a point where they had more or less reached an ideal and it didn't need a lot of changes. And it wasn't kept that way through force or through religious dogma or through any other like major form of oppression. I'm not going to say that it was a perfect society by any means. There were, you know, you know, there's there's absolutely classist issues in there and things like that. But for the most part, the people that were involved in that society were happy with their place in that society. Right. Until Matthew Perry sailed into the bay and blew up a bunch of uh, buildings and they went, ah, we've got some problems that we need to work out. Interesting. So it's almost less like <laughs> Commodore Perry, you know, was the UFO that arrived in Arkansas mm-hmm. and more like the UFO that arrived in like Finland. Yeah, sure. Let's, I, I like that better. Yeah. You've got a good point. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah, so so I mean I mean nationalism became a matter of okay, well, the old Japan isn't good enough anymore. We need to build a new Japan. And we need to build not only a new Japan in sort of a, a political way or in terms of infrastructure or even just economy, but in terms of a national identity. We need to build like from the ground up. And the thing that you should know about the word Meiji is that what it means is enlightened rule. Hmm. And once those wars, those, those small uprisings of Shogun versus Emperor were finally quelled, the way that the Meiji Emperor decided to go with things was that they need to create a synthesis of modern advances with traditional and very Eastern values. Yes. They felt that that was the best path forward, which, again... You know, out of so many things that we talk about in this topic, I can really see where they're coming from on this one. That seems like the most prudent course forward. Let's figure out a way to eliminate our weaknesses while playing to our strengths yeah, yeah. As, as a nation, which is, which is really what they strove for. There was something called the Five Charter Oath that was made in 1868. So, like, while even this whole quashing the rebellion thing was still going on. Now, remember that before this, there was a lot of... A lot of people who were supporting the emperor were hyper-traditionalists who were anti-foreign, things like that. But the Meiji emperor, when he came to power when he was uh, 17, I believe, wasn't as interested in that isolationism as his father had been. He was very much interested in you know, addressing the fact that, no, we're not equipped to deal with the outside world on equal terms. So this five-charter oath basically promoted five values for moving forward as a society the establishment of some sort of government that isn't just a feudal top-down system. They want some type of deliberative assembly. Um, And by that, do you mean at sort of like a federal or national level? They were hoping for something. I mean, at this point, they hadn't figured out what it's going to look like. And we're going to get to why with point number five. Point number five is going to clear up a lot of questions. All right. So let's hang on. Two through four. We're going to have the involvement of all classes in carrying out state affairs. So he was interested in abolishing the four-class society. He saw that as an artificial limitation on people's merit, which is an interesting concept, especially for an emperor. Also in the 19th century, in a country that doesn't have a democratic tradition. 
that that is essentially feudalist, yeah. Yeah, well, precisely. I mean, that's 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 a huge leap to make. I mean, that's that's something that the the French Revolution had difficulties with. Yeah, and, okay. <laughs> for for a for a child who's just been well, essentially a child who's just been handed absolute power to not only be interested in a deliberative assembly, but also in abolishing a class structure that gives him privilege. Yeah. What What's this guy doing? It's amazing. He wants what what's basically uh, the same as point number two. He wants to get rid of any sumptuary laws or restrictions on employment that go along with the, the class system. Number four is very, very broad, very vague, but they, the way they put it was the replacement of evil customs with just laws of nature. Now, what a just law of nature is, that's up for a lot of debate. But what I'm seeing at the very core of that, what you see in the term law of nature, especially just law of nature, is the more Renaissance-style humanist approach to yeah. uh, a worldview in that we should be looking at what's what's best for humanity and not necessarily for an established order or for a, uh, a spiritual orientation for uh, a society. Right. So I think what he's really focusing on there is any traditions that he doesn't like or any traditions he sees as harmful to Japan. So again, things like, you know, in a broad sense, the class system would be something that he would consider an evil custom. It is a custom. That custom was put into place with the Tokugawa shogunate. I mean, there wasn't a class system before 1600, or at least not as clearly established as it was during the Edo period. So he said, he's basically going, that's a Tokugawa construct. I don't think it's helping us. We're going to push that aside for just laws of nature, which again is that people should be able to uh, be mobile through society based on their own merit. Now, obviously, he isn't creating a class, uh, you know, a, a Marxist classless utopia here. It's not going to happen, but he's at least expressing these views as these things being ideals. Right. And point number five, and this is the most important thing that you need to know about the Meiji Restoration. If you remember one thing, this is it. Got my pencil. The international search for knowledge. Okay, so that makes sense because that to me is, that's basically the quintessential thing that you're supposed to take about Japan Mm -hmm. in the late 19th century. And then, in fact, in the early 20th century, Mm -hmm. in terms of like their, quote, role in the world is, well, yeah, sure. So they sent their kids to you know, Paris or to London, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to learn French and English and mm-hmm. to learn, you know, uh, scientific principles and whatever, so they can come back to Japan and structure their military accordingly or exactly. whatever. This was decreed by a 17-year-old, yeah. or, or I, I mean, he would have been a little bit older at this point in time, essentially set the course for Japan from that moment out. I mean, the, the, the thing that blows my mind about the Meiji Emperor is that he was made emperor when the the socially stratified society that he was born into was symbolized by the ability of the ruling class to wear swords and fire arrows and when he died in 1912 i mean he died in 1912 japan in 1912 was worlds away from where it was yeah i mean they were the first power. asian power to ever defeat a European power in, in battle with exactly. uh, well, in, the Russo-Japanese War. In and, the modern era, at least. Yeah, but, in the modern era, of course. Don't forget those Mongols, man. They'll yeah, come nah, and get well. you when you're least expecting it. <laughs> yes, but again, worlds away. Exactly. <laughs> Anyways, but but this this international search for knowledge is, is key to everything that happens from here on out. Because 
What they said was, okay, well, what happened was that the West beat us, but that doesn't mean that the West is unbeatable. Yes. They said, each of these societies has their strengths and weaknesses just as we do. What we need to do in order to maintain our way of life is to observe these societies, learn as much as we can from them, analyze them, learn their strengths, take those strengths, leave the weaknesses completely behind, and form a synthesis of these strengths from Western societies that are able to, cur- to currently beat us with our Eastern values. And in doing so, become a power that is on par or possibly even higher than Western powers, but still distinctively non-Western. Yes. That was very important to them. And I, I, this is one of the few times where I look at it and I'm going, wait, are they being a rational actor right now? Are they actually doing what would make sense in this situation? And I mean, obviously, it's going to fall apart in tiny ways here and there, but I can't think of a more logical way of dealing with that situation. It makes so much sense to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's essentially working within the confines of a system Mm -hmm. in order to, you know, better your own position within it, you know, Mm -hmm. so-called working the system. Exactly. They're absolutely working the system, and they're doing such a good job of it. So the first big reform that comes down is that in 1871, all the Han are abolished. So all those daimyos, all those landholding rulers, yeah, they don't rule their land anymore. They still own that land, although there is some um, redistribution to peasants and things like that. Instead, what he's setting up are prefectures, which kind of follow where Han had been in the past. But all these prefectures are going to be ruled by governors that report back to yeah, so essentially the it's a palace. centralization process exactly to ensure that Japan can have you know unity exactly. rather than a very strongly decentralized system yep. where obviously as we saw at the end of the Edo period you can have people's loyalty um, change quite quite easily and that can lead to some pretty unfortunate uh, events in terms of changing power. Exactly. And I mean, you know, the, this is something that the the shogun had had attempted to do as well through their, you know, residency programs and things like that was was centralization, but their centralization depended very much on holding the loyalties of their daimyo's hostage. It's still absolutely true that all of those daimyo's were independent actors within the system and that for the most part it was mostly their best interests to align with the shogun and it worked really well now that the shogunate has been abolished and the emperor has come basically from nowhere there is you know the smallest risk that these daimyos are going to resent the system and and rise up against him right yeah because they are technically within that society still nobility for for all intents and purposes so he strips them of their nobility rights essentially and puts in place uh, a governorship which is a small step towards political administration and i mean the guy's got to start somewhere but uh yeah he he goes basically from there to by 1889 there's been a constitution put in place now in all these ensuing years there in you know they're traveling the world examining the american constitution the french constitution looking at the british parliamentary system looking at the german parliamentary system which is a weird mess at this point in time but you know they're they're looking at all of these going okay what works well what doesn't work well what would work well for japan because just because something works well for the united states doesn't necessarily mean mm-hmm. it would work well for japan i mean they they looked at the the american constitution and said well this seems to be working really well for them but we feel it's way too liberal for japanese society they ended up settling on 
I mean, a weird mix of a bunch of different things. It most closely resembled the German parliamentary system, which makes sense when you realize that even though they set up a bicameral system, the upper house was made up entirely of former daimyos, and the lower house had about 1% suffrage, which is not a great start for a democracy, but it's something. It's a lot better than a feudal system, which is what they had a couple decades before this. But when suffrage started everywhere, it started with like, extreme limitations. Of course. And, yeah. I, the one question I have, really, is in sort of looking at nationalism, because that was the question we were evaluating before mm. we started talking about some of these reforms and structural changes that uh, the the emperor was really interested in. Yeah. From the perspective of, of, of nationalism leading into these changes, to what degree were people outside of the emperor's closest circle involved in any of the establishment of priorities or interests that's a great question that's a really good question as my understanding of it is that the emperor tended to surround himself with fairly like-minded people in terms of these initiatives Mm -hmm. but that the administrative work that went into sort of implementing all of this was fairly wide-ranging so there wasn't a lot running you know back up towards the emperor there was a lot coming back down so uh let's be a little bit more clear about that you would have a lot of something similar to the establishment of a of a committee in a current parliamentary context yep where he would assign uh one minister to go out create a committee and find the best way to go and do this okay and, so there was a certain degree of of actual consultation with people internally Mm -hmm. in terms of trying to identify priorities as well as people's wishes in addition to all these sort of like emissaries that are going out and trying to figure out what the best strategies are in external context. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the hardest thing to grasp for me about the the Meiji Restoration is the level of complete overhaul that Japan went through in this period of time. Because when... When I say that they examined everything about their society, I mean there were hundreds of people involved with examining every facet of Japanese life on every level and making decisions about optimization. That's, it's fascinating because like, I can't help but go back to the previous um, sort of comparison that we were looking at, right? And talking about Italy and Germany mm-hmm. and what is effectively the same time period. And sort of noticing that with 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 Germany and Italy, with with Germany, you pretty much just had Prussia go around and say, "Okay, you guys are all now part of Prussia." Yeah, Germany so, is just big Prussia. You know, nothing is going to change. You know, you still have the Junkers, you still have you know traditional social classes. You mentioned with the Parliament, and they pretty the... much just imported the same structures across, and they imported the same military doctrine. Mm-hmm. They imported similar ideas around virtually everything that's important for the actual foundation and structure of a functional society. Yeah. And the and, same is true in Italy. And then had to impose a, a forced nationalism upon anyone that wasn't Prussian before that process started in order to foster national unity. Precisely. Which, of course, thankfully, they were able to do using shared language, mm-hmm. um, despite the fact that there are numerous dialects in both Italian and German. Exactly. And those things are still big questions today, mm-hmm. uh, particularly if you look at, for example, like the south of Italy. Mm-hmm. But it, it, to me, that's very striking when you when you contrast that with, with Japan's experience, because it's mind-boggling to me to think of a society going to that extreme yeah. in order to reevaluate pretty much everything related to its very existence. Yeah. Now, I, I don't... 
and again, it's, it's easy when you're talking about these things to simplify or oversimplify, right? It's not as though there was no resistance within society. The samurai class made up as much as 10% of the population, about 8 to 10%, which is a huge ruling class. That's a really big ruling class for a society. And a lot of them, I mean, I mean when, you, when you have all these reforms going on, a lot of samurai were stripped of the rights that they had enjoyed for a century, if not millennia, going back through their families. I mean, they weren't allowed to carry their swords anymore. That that alone was a big deal. Let alone, you know, the the salaries that they were drawing just by virtue of of birthright and things like that. Yeah, for sure. It's never easy for the ruling class to give up that power. But then at the same time, there were other, you know, there was a good half of samurai that were kind of content to give that stuff up because now they were no longer required to maintain this decadent lifestyle yeah there's this veneer of of nobility and what they were able to do instead with their education and with their 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 privileged upbringing was to instead become government officials or bureaucrats or officers in the army or uh, use their wealth to establish large companies and and find themselves in fairly privileged positions in the you know so-called classless society post uh, restoration so some of them saw it as an opportunity to get out of what they saw as a, uh, a, a somewhat oppressive traditional system. Yeah. Because they were they were drowning. They were you know they were they were floundering a little bit with these requirements of them as samurai within that system. But the fact that you use the word or the expression should I say the veneer of nobility I think is really is really sort of quite interesting because it it highlights the fact that people were sort of trapped being in a, in a in a system where they had a lot of you know they were high born mm-hmm. but they weren't necessarily wealthy mm-hmm. so they were very privileged but they weren't necessarily benefiting from that privilege the same way that people in uh higher castes or higher classes in perhaps other western societies mm-hmm. would have been so it, it's it's really quite interesting to see that there could be such a significant benefit to that remodeling of the class system which is sort of like how when America became its own country, they sort of, part of it was rejecting the idea of monarchy, mm-hmm. and part of it was rejecting more widely the idea of a very sort of like clearly delineated class structure. Yes. And, you know, the, the, the result of that has been that like wealthy people in America lead quite dramatically different lives than wealthy people do, even in Britain in you know 2015 sure and i mean if you compare the beleaguered samurai in in tokugawa shogunate they didn't have the same options as for example you know second or third sons in a european feudal system because a lot of those people would end up in uh, more of a merchant role right like they would end up going into business and and making themselves a somewhat more comfortable lifestyle that way not only was it forbidden to, for samurai to go into, like, to become a merchant, but merchants were, in fact, three steps down the rungs. Like, that wasn't, the, the merchants were not the middle class. The merchants were considered bottom feeders in, in, in pre-Meiji Japanese society. Yeah. That wasn't really an option for a, a, a samurai who was having a rough go of it. Likewise, there's all these uh, merchants who are supposed to be the bottom of society who because of inflation and because of sort of uh, the accruement of wealth were finding themselves in a much more comfortable position than a lot of samurai, but were unable to display it 
uh, socially, right? Because it was it was forbidden to do so. Yeah, you've got a really weird tension between those two classes going on, and the yeah, sort only of like reason... the old the old money and the new money. Exactly, exactly. But but you know, in 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 when, when you look at the European transition through all of these things, all the, all those growing pains, the 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 new money was one step below the the monarchy, right? Or the, the nobility, I should say. Excuse me. And, you know, a, a well-off merchant was living a fairly flamboyant lifestyle. They were they were able to live well, sometimes even move up into the nobility. That was not an option for a merchant in, in Japanese society. It's all based on these Confucian ideals, specifically Neo-Confucianism, where there's nothing socially productive about being a merchant. And it's all about your value to society, not your individual virtue or ability. I, I really, really find that explanation quite fascinating because it sort of throws on its head the notion of the bourgeoisie, um, which of course is connected to all these you know, class struggle ideas and looking at how so much of that is like culturally sanctioned, right? So oh, absolutely. The, the idea that if you have a, a class structure that puts these merchants at the bottom, effectively they would be a bourgeoisie, mm-hmm. but because of the limitations within their culture, they don't actually have the ability to become the bourgeoisie. It's, exactly. It's un, it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's it's just not an option for that. But I mean, Marxism or, or Marxist theory could still be applied. It just ends up looking so different. Yeah. So very, very different. Yeah. There, there is no merchant class. You know, you still have people owning the means of production, but in a very, very different way. But I mean, owning owning the, the means of production and benefiting fully from owning the means of production are two completely different things. Absolutely. Which is fundamentally what, what that comes down to when we're looking at Marxist theory, right? So yeah. it's a really quite minimal use to own the means of production if you can't use that to fully exploit uh, people's labor mm-hmm. and to, you know, control markets, et cetera, et cetera. No, meanwhile, the peasantry are expected to uh, maintain a, a level of uh, distinction, at least compared to some of the other mm. classes. So, I mean, they're actually benefiting from the fruits of their labor, which is really, really interesting. But yeah, the, the tension between the merchants and the samurai really is is where you see a lot of uh, the ruling class actually fairly willingly giving up power yeah. with the abolition of the formalized class structure. So I guess the next logical question for me is that once the system does begin to deteriorate or once it's being dismantled, to what degree has this increased social and economic mobility resulted in the establishment of this new wealth, uh, the new wealthy or the new money or the bourgeoisie? There were a lot of businesses that were established right about this period. It's uh, in the 1870s? Yeah, in, in Japanese history that became very successful very quickly. It was a time of, of, of very, very strong economic growth for them because not only are they changing socially, but I mean, they're going through an industrial revolution. Yeah. Like, like that. It, it was, it was practically overnight, which is, which is just phenomenal. I mean, they, they, they basically base their whole model for industrialization on Britain. They base a lot of stuff on Britain, which makes a lot of sense when you kind of think about the two cult- uh, the two countries geographically. Yeah, both being islands and both having to rely on a navy and having to rely mm-hmm. on being self-sufficient with their own agriculture. But also being right off the coast of a much larger geographic body that is yeah. uh, culturally and economically and militarily fairly strong. 
Europe being a little bit more fractured, but I mean, let's face it, if France and Germany decided that they didn't want Britain around, they'd be in big trouble. Yeah, precisely. Um, which is, you know, what, what Japan is looking at with, with China, right? Yeah. So they, they based a lot of that, you know, a lot of their their model for economic and industrial growth on Britain because Britain also was somewhat resource poor. Britain also wanted to sort of work on a, um, a basis of importing raw goods exporting finished goods yeah for, mercantilism yeah mercantilism exactly yeah. that that was really the only way that that japan was going to quickly accumulate wealth so they you know looked around german industrialism didn't work for them american industrialism certainly didn't work for them british industrialism good fit let's right. go with the british model that all comes back to point five international search for knowledge I was looking at some of the numbers on on their increases. In 1872, they had 29 kilometers of railroad track. By 1914, they had 11,400 kilometers. Where did that? It's it's yeah. That's what that's 40, 42 40 years. Year period? 42 years. Yeah. We've got their their merchant navy. They had 26 merchant steamships ships in 1873, most of which purchased from Western powers. I can only imagine. By 1913, they had over 1,500 merchant steamships, most of which built domestically. Yeah. Coal production, or coal mining, I should say. 1875, 600,000 metric tons mined. By 1913, over 21 million metric tons mined. In terms of annual production? Yeah, annual production. Wow. That's just... That's staggering. No one else has ever industrialized that fast i mean the germans they went fast they did nothing compared to the japanese it's 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 astounding especially considering again a completely feudal system including their 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 industry before the 1850s Mm -hmm. well it's it really sort of like shed some light onto why i think in particular the russians completely misunderestimated the capacity Militarily and otherwise, mm. of of Japan at the turn of the century. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Again, like they didn't they didn't have zero problems internally as they were going through all of this. There they they reformed their armed forces in 1873, which is right after the Franco-Prussian War. Yep. And they looked mainly at the the French and the Prussians uh, in terms of how to modify their their military. They ended up going with a French model of constri- conscription. So they ended up uh, requiring all male citizens to serve for four years at the age of 21 and then another three years in reserve. But their officer school was entirely Prussian. Yeah. So their their whole training regimen, the way they structured their military was all based fairly closely on the German system. Not to say that they didn't take other aspects from other militaries around the world, but that was the main basis for mm-hmm. them. Now, this was kind of a, a catalyst for uh, a rebellion in uh, the Satsuma region a couple of years later, 1877. And uh, we talked about The Last Samurai last time a tiny bit. That was a synthesis between some stuff going on in the 1860s between the, you know, the, the shogun and the, and the emperor and this 1877 uh, yeah. Satsuma rebellion. This is the one where you get the newly modernized imperial Japanese army fighting samurai that if you take the movie version decided to go it with swords and bows right which wasn't exactly accurate but they were definitely less modernized than the imperial army and the imperial army very decisively put down the rebellion fairly quickly and i i mean that's if anything was just a a, a demonstration to the entire country that 
yeah, this whole taking on some outside ideas is a good idea because this could have been us. The way we put down that rebellion, that could have been our whole country. Yeah, I can only imagine to what degree that would have harkened back to the gunships coming into the harbor and blowing up those buildings. Absolutely. And putting down this 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 rebellion really helped with sort of national unity. There was you know, after that, other than the odd rumbling, there was virtually no resistance to uh, modernization of Japanese culture. Mm-hmm. So uh, you get things like uh, national dialect was actually established. Now, uh, Japan, just like any other country at this point in time, all over the world had so many regional dialects. There was an official government dialect that was established that was taught in schools um, that everyone was supposed to know how to speak. Yep. There are certain dialects that still exist in uh, throughout Japan, um, Osaka comes to mind. It's way far south. There's Are you talking a... about uh, right now? Yeah, right yeah. now, modern. Uh, the, yeah, there's one in Osaka. It's it's way south of, of most of the population centers of uh, of Japan. There's like really strongly in Kyoto. There's a, a dialect called Kansai, which is really difficult to understand if you speak you know standard Japanese, from what I understand. But other than a couple of like weird regionalisms like that, everyone is at least supposed to understand uh, standardized Japanese. Yeah, it's, it's like the model of uh, modern standard Arabic. So I, I took some Arabic. I know almost nothing about that. Yeah, I, I, took, I took a few Arabic courses. So the, the idea is that everyone is supposed to learn modern standard, which is effectively used by virtually nobody. It's, oh, not, it's not really used in the interpretation of the Quran, um, because there's also classical Arabic, mm-hmm. um, and it's not used by people from different countries, because... Each different country in the Middle East, not to mention each different region of these countries, sure. has such a long history of speaking its own dialect. I can imagine it's completely the same situation as looking at sort of like these dialects in uh, in in Japan. The mm-hmm. only notable difference, of course, being that Japan actually has control over this because it's implementing it in its own country, whereas yeah. modern standard, as far as Arabic is concerned, is a relatively modern phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And... You know, there's no way that you can implement that degree of change when you're talking about, you know, dozens of countries that have that language spoken in it. Is there anywhere that uh, standard standard Arabic is used? Is it used in government official documents or in a religious context? Or is everyone just kind of speaking their own version of Arabic? You know, as I mentioned before, right? I mean, like, there's classical Arabic, which would be used when you would go to mosque. Sure, of course. And then uh, each government would, you know, use its own sort of, like dialect of of That's arabic fascinating uh, of course as well like it's it's not so much that the written language changes it's more that the spoken language changes and it's more that sort of like the colloquialisms in each language would be completely different it, it almost reminds me of the uh the transatlantic accent that they tried to kind of create in the uh the 20s and 30s you know that really like clipped yeah like uh, what you're talking yeah, about yeah, that yeah yeah um, that, was, that was basically a, a creation that they were trying to synthesize between American and British accents to yeah. find something that sounds like, you know, it, it combines like the, the, the speed of, of the American dialect with some of the class of the, of the British accent and, and ended up being used virtually nowhere. But it was an attempt through the, uh, the uh, entertainment industry, basically, mm-hmm. of having people speak in a way that's... And, and other things, but the entertainment industry was the biggest one to adopt it. Absolutely, um, yeah. Something that's relatable to any audience that speaks English, basically, even though no one actually ever sounds like that. And really interesting, too, given the context, right? The birth of the radio mm-hmm. in the 1920s yeah. uh, being completely something that fueled that. Yeah. 
So we're way away from Japan. Yeah, we are. <laughs> we should probably talk about Japan. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this, this national dialect was established at the same time as they were putting schools in place, right? And the schools were based on the, the British model. And yep. they, they felt that that worked best for them. But as you said, there were a lot of people that were sending students abroad to Britain or to France or to wherever they felt would be most useful for their children on a, on a sort of international level. On a, and, and, you know, there was no, you know, even though the, the official Japanese uh, decision was to adopt and uh, adapt a, a British model, that doesn't necessarily mean that there was a, a push away from any other model. It was mm-hmm. more, this is what we feel is going to be best for us as a nation, and this is what we're going to adapt on a soci- adopt on a societal level. But take what you can from anywhere that you can and synthesize it into our own culture, because that can only serve to make us stronger, which is a really interesting way of looking at things. And this went to military reforms. This went especially to naval reforms. A lot of my background in this modernization is through naval history. Yeah. Because the Imperial Japanese Navy is such a success story in terms of where it went between like 1850 and 1880. I mean, they didn't just go, okay, well, Britain just has the biggest navy in the world. Let's take on British ship designs. They said... Um, okay, well, the British have the best hulls, so let's figure out how they make their hulls. But the Germans have the best guns, so let's get their gunsmiths working on our stuff. Yeah, and the French have the best, like, sights or... Yeah, yeah, uh, Dutch had the best optics. The French had really good sails, but, you know, that became less, <laughs> less important. That's, but they also that's, had very That sounds good... like a really good joke about the French Navy. <laughs> no, no, they, they also had really good steam engines. Though. Oh, good, good. Yeah, yeah, no, they, they, they synthesized all of this stuff and made, like, one boat that was better than any of the other boats. Yeah. Ships. My old naval professor would kill me for calling those boats. Did you have Sardi? Yes. Oh, he was great. He was incredible. I had a couple of other ones that were really good too, but yeah. No, uh, a ship is a a ship is a boat that can carry other boats. Don't ever forget it. <laughs> um, anyways, <laughs> um, what they would do is they would take these experts that knew all these things. They would bring British hull makers and they would bring them to Japan and they would say, okay, we, we've purchased a hull from you. We've seen how it, you know, how it works. Uh, I want you to teach us how. And they would be building dry docks in Japan. They would bring dock workers from Britain, show us how to make dry docks. They made their own dry docks. Show us how to build a hull using these dry docks. They built these hulls. Once the Japanese experts felt that they had learned how to make these things well enough that they didn't need these people anymore, they kicked them out of the country. Yeah, exactly. It's like you're no longer of any use to us. Because now they know how. And they're going to take that as their starting point for their Navy. And they're going to develop it further with their own technicians, with their own scientists, with their own engineers, who are also being trained overseas in the best methods possible. Precisely. It goes perfect reinforcement of the the fifth point you were talking about in terms of their, their principles for modernization. And that method is being used in, like I, I mean, again, I'm talking a lot about the Navy because that's what I know best, but that's being used everywhere. That's being used in their, their, their printing industry, for example. They're looking at who has the best printing presses and who has the best bindings, who has the best ink. Figure out who has the best ink and then use the best ink. Which, you know, on, on the, the, the scope of the project is staggering. It's, it's, it's hard to imagine applying that to every aspect of a modern society. Well, not even the least of which, each what is de- determined to be 
significant aspect mm-hmm. of Japanese society. Even yeah. at that, that's a daunting task. And I mean, it, it comes down to, I, there, there's there's a point in time at which this is no longer official, right? Like there, there's a point in time where somebody is establishing a bookbinding company, but they're going like, okay, well, you know, I, I've heard really good things about this country and that country and this method. And, you know, there's these guys over in the US that are doing interesting things. And they're going to go and do their own research on this stuff, you know? There isn't, the, you know, there's, there's a point at which the, the, the Meiji Emperor is no longer making edicts on who has the best ink in the world. Like that, that stops happening after uh, like an administrative level, right? So something like the military, absolutely. Something like, you know, I, I, I don't know, uh, making clothing or something like that. Yeah. yeah, he doesn't care. But there's been this virtue of international search for knowledge instilled in the populace to such an extent that people are going to be going and doing this on their own. Yeah, because people are doing it out of their own volition, not because it's being decreed by their leader. And as much as this is a, a, a change from what we had before, there is still that virtue that we touched on very briefly of doing things well, you know, taking pride in your work, craftsmanship, making sure that it's done right and not just on a big scale. Yeah. And and that's all kind of combined in here. So we've gotten sort of to uh, 1890-ish and there's big changes in the works, but really a couple of the most defining things of the Meiji Restoration, those being the two major wars that they became embroiled in, Uh, are coming up. So I think we should probably take a break here and afterwards we'll get into uh, those two establishing wars. Hey everyone. You'll notice that uh, this episode is episode 24 and there are two official episodes to each month that I do, which means that this is the 12th month. We're at the one year anniversary right after this um, episode comes out. So to everyone that listens who have told your friends about the show, uh, I just really wanted to say thank you. I never thought it was going to turn into anything even close to what it's become over the past year. And uh, I really hope to keep putting out interesting and entertaining shows for the next full year. So thank you, everyone. All right, we're back on HI 101 here with James Mitchell. And uh, just wrapping up things with the Meiji Restoration. There's been some, been some big changes in Japanese society. That was an understatement. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> um, Only radical changes. There's very little that hasn't changed in Japanese uh, society. I was going to say, they're still speaking the same language. And I was like, mm, we just discussed that. Yeah, yeah, even that, maybe. Depends on where he's... I, I mean, most of the country, no. Somebody's still speaking the same language. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of them. Yeah. Yeah, no, the, the, the scope of the, the changes that happen. I could sit here for two hours and just read off all the things that changed, and, and I would have no problem filling that time. It'd be super boring, but... I would listen to that on repeat. <laughs> at night to put you to sleep. Oh, so boring. So boring. <laughs> One of the biggest things that came out of all of these changes and that's I know that's a big statement to make because there's a lot of changes but in terms of Japan's place in the world is that at the same time as Japan is transforming itself it's also seeing all of these places around it sort of crumble to western imperialism yep and this really instills a bit of a sense of superiority in Japan because they're looking at what's happening in the world around them, especially in their part of the world, 
and going, okay, well, China, which has been sort of this looming shadow militarily, culturally, economically for thousands and thousands of years, they're, they're fighting wars to try to keep Westerners from legally selling drugs to their citizens for, you know, and, and like, they, they look like a mess. Yeah, not to mention that they're not really capable of being remotely successful in these wars either. Exactly. They're, 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 they're doing badly. China is doing badly. And that's unheard of from a Japanese perspective because, you know, I think as we, we started off very, very early on saying, uh, I think for a lot of people, Chinese history, if you, if you don't specifically study it, starts when Europeans get there. Yes. Which is sad. Yep. But the history of Europeans being there is us as Europeans kind of slowly bludgeoning them into an arrangement where we can trade off of them in a completely unequal way that's entirely beneficial for the Europeans in the trade yeah. uh, arrangement. And the same thing is happening in Vietnam and the same thing is happening in the oh the Philippines. Oh, don't even get me started on the Philippines, that poor, poor country. And then there's Japan. They had some setbacks. They had the Harris Treaties. They had all of these things kind of come in very early on when contact was forced on them. And they took it. They learned a lesson. And they transformed themselves into this society that, while certainly from a European standpoint, wasn't being viewed as an equal, not even close, if viewed objectively, was probably on a fairly similar standing to a lot of Western nations at that point in time absolutely comparing countries is always just a complete gong show right like uh yeah it's 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 so difficult to do yeah on numerous matrices but yeah there, there's yeah it, uh, not even going to get into all the problems there you were inviting disaster mm-hmm. but as much as you can kind of take uh you know a rough estimate of those things japan is doing pretty well for itself at this mm-hmm. point in time absolutely now one of the um, more unfortunate ideals that it kind of takes on from these Western powers is that the best way to succeed in the modern world is through economic imperialism, because that seems to be working for all of these uh, these European powers that are coming in and exploiting these countries. So why couldn't it work for Japan? And uh, if if not, at least it's sort of the the yardstick by which you measure your worth. Absolutely. At this point in time, if you don't have colonies, you're practically not a Western country. Yeah. It's which which is a weird measure, but you know they can't go back to measuring the amount of rice it takes to feed one man for one year. Yeah, exactly. That has been obliterated. That world no longer exists. Mm-hmm. That thing still has worth, but now the worth is measured in currency and not for its own virtue. Yeah, and it still has worth, but the question is, are you going to convince anybody else of your worth? Are you going to be able to posture? Exactly. Um, using that type of, of, uh, of evaluation. Yep. And, and one thing that you alluded to earlier, which I think is really important, is this idea in the 19th century of, and I mean, it's not a new idea, but it became very popular in the 19th century, is the projection of power, which was a big part of, of gunboat diplomacy. But like, really, it's, it's, it's just a matter of demonstrating that you are capable of using power against another nation if you need to while not actually using that power, um, sort of strong-arming someone into, into something by making vague threats about it. Yeah. You know, nice country you got there. Be a shame if something ever happened to it, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. I'm pretty sure that's exactly where the, uh, 
where that saying came from. Uh-huh. Uh, but, but, but yeah, I, I mean, Japan's looking at this and going, okay, well, we're an island nation, kind of like Britain. How does Britain, how does Britain become fairly uniformly recognized as the most powerful nation, globally speaking? Well, it's their navy. It's their navy, and through their navy, it's their overseas colonies. It's their ability to project that power overseas. How does Japan become a powerful nation? Use their navy to project power overseas. We haven't talked a lot about other countries in the area, but now we kind of need to start doing so. We've got Korea, and Korea is central to anything that we talk about with Japan in terms of foreign relations, because they're the two of them butt heads so often that it's really central to understanding what's going on with Japan overseas. Korea had adopted a really similar policy to Japan in terms of exclusion of European powers. Uh, During the same period as the Edo period? Correct. But even up until where we're talking now, until the 1880s. In the late late 19th century? The late 19th century. They basically shut everybody out. Now, Korea is a really interesting country. I wish I knew more about them, but... As we alluded to earlier, you know, the fact that they've managed to retain a distinct identity with China on their doorstep is just absolutely remarkable. It's it's hard to it's hard to imagine how they managed to do that. Now at this point in time, Korea is basically a vassal state. Yeah, I was gonna ask, do they maintain their sort of like sovereignty or political uh, freedom? They kind of bought their cultural freedom at the price of their political freedom. Okay. Which Korea saw as a reasonable trade. Yeah. Besides, who else are they really going to ally with? Well, they kind of have to. They're at least a peninsula that only borders China. Exactly. Japan kind of looks at Korea, who's not trading with anybody, and goes, I bet they've got some stuff that we'd like, and turns around and starts imposing unfair treaties on Korea. They show up with their giant, shiny new warships, sail into their harbors, force them to trade with them, Force them to sign unfair treaties that include things like, you know, the the exemption of Japanese uh, citizens from any of the laws in the land that 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 force them to give Japanese uh, merchants really favorable trade terms. Yeah. Give Japan the right to defend their trade interests in Korea. It's basically colonialism without having to found the colony yourself. Yeah. Is really what it comes down to. Yeah. And. Korea was in a fairly similar um, situation that Japan had been several decades earlier. They had nothing to protect themselves with from Japan. So they were forced into these treaties to trade. This created a lot of tension with China, who was really Korea's only trade partner up until that point in time. Not to mention that Korea was like firmly within the sphere of influence of China at the time. Yeah. And again, in a mirror image of Japan, internally Korea was split between, well, should we start opening up? It seemed to have worked for Japan. Or should we stay incredibly conservative and look to China for our protection? Mm-hmm. Because that's been working for us for over a thousand years. And, and, and that's a really difficult conversation to have internally as a nation. And, you know, they didn't really have a great answer for it, or a decisive answer for it, I should say. Now, eventually, you kind of get to a point where things have to go one way or the other, right? And that point for Korea was that in 1894, there was a small rebellion. The king of Korea asked China for some troops to help put down the rebellion. It turned out the rebellion wasn't actually that big, and they didn't really need the troops. But China 
sent in the troops anyway, basically as an offer of goodwill to say that, you know, well, if you had needed them, like here, here, here they are, we're showing you that we can deliver on our promises as a partnered nation. Also partly is some saber rattling towards Japan in that, listen, Korea is kind of our turf. Yeah, I was going to say, it's got to be at least partially posturing. and Absolutely. Yeah. Japan claimed that this violated a treaty in which Korea had to notify Japan of any Chinese troops entering the Korean Peninsula. Now, China says that they notified Japan, but this was enough that, you know, Japan sent in their own troops as also a a show of goodwill to support the Korean king. Uh, The Korean king basically called for the expulsion of Japanese troops. He didn't want them in his country. And so the Japanese troops overthrew the Korean king and installed a pro-Japanese Korean government. Turns out the Chinese didn't love this. Shocking. I know, right? The the pro-Japanese government gave Japanese troops the right to expel Chinese troops with force if need be. Yeah. Which they did. And the Chinese considered this new government illegitimate, which arguably it was. So, I mean, this is one of those situations where you look at it and it's like, man, no one's the good guy here. Like, there's a lot of issues on both sides that are very complicated and very much shades of gray. Well, you have a lot of layers based on who has the right to to make treaties when you have a vassal state and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's definitely tricky. Yep. There are no winners, but there is a loser, and it's Korea who's getting trampled over by several foreign armies (laughs) and having very little say in the whole matter. Yes. As is often the case in the history of colonialism. Yeah. At that point, war is declared. I mean, wars have been declared by, like, over so much less. Wars start for dumb reasons. And the more history I read, the more I realize that it's like people have gone to war for just the stupidest reasons. It does not take much. I think we're fortunate in this society to have this idea that war is a very last-ditch effort. It is sort of the collapse of all other options. And that if for some reason war was to be declared, there is something of a social contract that says if a war is being declared, that's because things are so bad that that is the only possible option. Either that or you just want oil. Well, all the other options went away for getting the oil. <laughs> they didn't work out. They wouldn't give them the oil. Yeah, yeah. The gunboat diplomacy thing didn't work. And uh, yeah, so yeah. option two. Option two. But I, I mean, in, in general, I think we're fortunate that we have Oh, that. absolutely. If, if something like the oil issues that you're alluding to happens, I think it's also a good thing that society often, at least large segments of society, feel betrayed by that. That they don't feel like it's a legitimate reason to go to war. That's not the case for most of history. For most of history, it takes almost nothing to go to war. And I think something like this really kind of demonstrates that even even this seems somewhat legitimate compared to some of the other things you see from early feudal Europe, that they'd, they'd go to war over nothing. Anyways, basically the first thing that happened when war was declared was the Imperial Japanese Army secured the entire Korean Peninsula and started pushing into Manchuria. Mm-hmm. Manchuria is fairly resource-rich, and Japan's always kind of had its eye on Manchuria. Well, Manchuria is sort of like the area adjacent to the Korean border, right? Yes, that's correct. Just just north of Korea. So they started, they started moving in. Uh, at the same time, the Imperial Japanese Navy moves into the Yellow Sea, 
wipes out the the Chinese Navy with very little trouble. And that's the body of water that's west of the Korean Peninsula, but east of mainland China. That's correct. Yeah. So basically, if you if you drew a line from Beijing to Seoul, it would go through yeah. the Yellow Sea. Okay. There were a couple of major ports right along the Yellow Sea. So yeah. uh, having control of the Yellow Sea is really important. The thing to remember anytime that Japan goes to war is that the more control of the sea that it has, the better off it is because the only way you can get to Japan is through the sea. Yes. So the first thing that they try to do is get troops on the ground because then you're on the defensive and you're not in a position to launch ships. Then they lock down any uh, chance of your Navy coming out to retaliate like while they're fighting on their own turf. Yep. And once that happens, they're basically secure in terms of worrying about their own homelands. Now, the Chinese military had been going through sort of a reformation of its own. It had, it had uh, modernized a lot of stuff. But what it hadn't done a great job of modernizing was sort of the personnel structure of the military. And I'm sure you're at least as familiar as I am with this, but they weren't the most professional army out there. Yeah. They had a lot of problems with, with simple discipline things like... And... Yeah, yeah, discipline. Thank yeah. you. As well as rampant opium use throughout the uh, the military, which was extremely problematic for, you know, all of China for all of the century. <laughs> yeah. But it, it played a significant part in their effectiveness in warfare. So when this this war broke out, you know, commentators were looking at this going, China has like so many more troops than Japan and they have new military hardware. Their Navy is in fairly good condition. Navies have long life lifespans, right? Yeah. So like a 30 year old Navy is not that old, really. I, I, I would have to look up the, the numbers. I, I mean, it's a mixed Navy that the, that the Chinese had at this point in time. It was a little bit on the older side, but not so much that it would be considered outdated by anyone's standards. Yeah. They didn't know how to use it properly. And you're talking about mixed, meaning steam and sail, or...? Mostly steam at this point in time. Yeah. Almost exclusively steam. Now, the steam ships that we're talking about at this point in time, some of them would have been ironclad. Like they, they most, of, most of them would have been ironclad on the sides. Right. A lot of them would still have sails as backup in case the steam broke down. The French do make the best sails. <laughs> Always. But, you know, there isn't a full confidence in the steam engine as the primary engine of a ship at this point in time they still they've still got sails there just in case as well the the decks tended to be wooden still at this point in time Mm -hmm. so shelling was a big problem for ships but we're getting into all sorts of really specific stuff that we don't really need to um well it depends on how much you like ships i really enjoy talking about ships ships. the japanese army pushes into mainland china the japanese navy has the yellow sea locked down the japanese Navy and Army start working together on, say, bombarding ashore while the Navy is, uh, or while the Army is moving in from another direction. That kind of combined arms warfare yeah, was say, fairly that's... new at this point in time. Well, that's like shockingly new because even in the First World War, yeah. um, combined arms warfare wasn't something that was being used until uh, Zhukov mm-hmm. uh, on the, that's the wrong person, it starts with the B, um, uh, on the Eastern Front. I can never uh, remember in the guy's name. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll look it up. That will be, uh, and stick that will it in the, show the notes, notes later. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I can never remember the guy's name. Anyways, I, I mean, it wasn't true combined arms warfare in the in the, in the modern sense. It was more, like, you know, they, they wouldn't be shelling at the same time as they would be invading. Basic because, coordination. Yeah, basic coordination is what it all comes down to. And it was really shocking for the Chinese troops. They had no idea what to do with it. And, you know, the whole world is looking at this, you know, the 1880s, or sorry, the 1890s, 
comparable would be the Boer War, yeah. which happened just shortly uh, after this, you know, uh, five years after. So you're digging trenches. You know, it's very static warfare. The Japanese were practicing very mobile warfare at this point in time, and no one really knew what to do with it, which I find really interesting. But they were definitely on the cutting edge of, of waging war with these new tools that, that you know, 50 years prior, they, they weren't using at all. They well, never... Yeah, and definitely a precursor to what Japan is going to be capable of doing in the 1930s as exactly. well. Exactly. Yeah, very, very true. So Japan wins, you know, long story short. Basically, the terms that come out of it is that they forced China to recognize Korean independence, Mm -hmm. which sounds like it would be good for Korea, but really that's just to free them up for, you know, oppression by Japan, you know, through trade. Yeah, and to relinquish China's sort of like vassal state claim so that Japan can then have it. Exactly. They also ceded Taiwan to Japan and as well as a number of other, you know, small islands here and there uh, between Japan and China. That didn't last long, but, you know, there was significant transfer of, of territory in, in the uh, terms of this. This also resulted in massive societal reforms in Korea. So a lot of the modernization of Korea is actually a fairly direct result of... The Sino-Japanese War. Yeah, exactly. Outside of Japan, you know, you've got this war contributing really strongly to the Boxer Rebellions. Boxer Rebellions are all about blaming issues on foreign influence, right? Well... Yeah, it, it, being beaten by Japan is one more thing that they can kind of hang their hat on. So, mm-hmm. you know, at the same time as as they've they've gotten this defeat, Russia is also kind of messing around in the in their eastern territories. They've always wanted Manchuria. Russia had been trying to get Manchuria since Ivan the Terrible. So, like, a couple hundred years. That's 16th century stuff. But they never really managed to actually capture it from China. What they were doing at this point in time was A, they wanted the resources of Manchuria, so they're hoping to kind of slowly creep into the area through influence. B, the furthest south port that they had on the Pacific was Vladivostok, which is not a year-round port. It freezes over in the winter. They wanted a warm water port. Which Russia doesn't even have on the west coast either. Uh, Yes, that is correct. So I mean, mean, at they least want... they do have the port in the Black Sea. Yeah, I, I was about to say there's there's the Crimea. Really count. Yeah, there's there's the Crimea, but it's not it's not the most convenient one. Yeah. Um, if they have to launch ships in the winter, they can do it there, but they've got a lot of negotiating to do to get it out. Yeah, good luck with that because you know, we all know what the Ottomans and the Russians <laughs> think of each other. They're all about the free trade, right? Yeah, yeah, they love Mm-mm. each other. <laughs> so. They're hoping to get their hands on Port Arthur. Port Arthur is a Chinese port in, uh, like on the coast of the Yellow Sea. And that is a warm water port. So much so that they go to the trouble of actually leasing Port Arthur from the Chinese for a fair amount of money. They're hoping to, again, kind of like very slowly creep in. And once it's under lease, they decide to extend the Trans-Siberian Railway, which they're already working on getting to Vladivostok. They look at extending a a line down through China to Port Arthur, which really is kind of transparent when you think about it. You don't just do that, like build a railway on someone else's land out of the good of your heart. Or, you know, even saying that it's for your own benefit because you're using that port right now is pretty shaky for something like... Considering the amount of effort and money it takes for that type of infrastructure project it's a massive undertaking so japan is looking at this they also want control of manchuria they're worried about korea which is like right 
outside of Port Arthur. Port Arthur is very, fairly close to Korea. And they're starting to think in terms of spheres of influence, and they're going, the Russians are creeping on ours. So in 1902, Japan enters an alliance with Britain. And it's a very, very specific treaty. It says that if Japan is engaged in warfare in the Pacific, in the East, and a third party enters the war, Britain will defend Japan against that third party. This feels like it's going to be completely useless. But it was set up specifically by Japan because it knew that it was going to end up in war with Russia sooner or later over this sort of territorial creep into areas that Japan also wanted to creep into. And it wanted to exclude either France or Germany from the warfare. So this treaty means that if they go to war with Russia and either France or Germany goes to war with Japan over it, that Britain will go to war with France or Germany. Precisely. So it completely negates France or Germany from the the equation, leaving Japan versus Russia just alone. And the the important part of the context that I think is missing there is that this is in this is right in the middle of the period where the Triple Entente is being set up mm-hmm. and where the Triple Alliance, which is Austria, Hungary, Germany, and Italy, mm-hmm. has already been established. Absolutely. Um, so like the the whole model of alliance systems is very significant. Um, and Japan not actually being part of the alliance system, and not really wanting to be part of the alliance system, but wanting to be its own ind- independent player, being able to protect its own sphere of influence, yep. being able to go to war and mm-hmm. getting protection without having to give protection to other people exactly. when they go to war yep. is clearly in the absolute best interest of Japan. Yep. And I mean, Britain is, is concerned about Russian ex- expansion at this point in time. So, you know, uh, allowing... Japan to go to war with Russia unfettered is really adv- advantageous for Britain because worst case scenario, they get to see Russia lose some resources that they're putting into a successful war against Japan. Yeah. Right? And and, and they know. don't have to put out anything. They don't have to do a single thing to see Russia hurt by a war because no one, you know, if you win a war, you still come out badly. Doesn't of course, matter. absolutely. So no matter what happens, Britain gets to see Russia come down a few pegs. Exactly. And, you know, uh, further to the context as well is that the Great Game, which was Russia's longstanding competition, which I guess an easy way to think about it is a 19th century version of the Cold War Mm -hmm. um, between uh, Britain and and Russia, was largely focused on Britain limiting the land uh, expansion of Russia um, for the last half of the 19th century, which includes the first incursion um, into Afghanistan by uh, the British, the first of quite a few incursions that were unsuccessful. Yeah, yeah absolutely. No, no, no. It, it, it's, it's really interesting how Japan manages to take that, that, that treaty system and really use it to its advantage in this situation. Well, I think they were able to exploit the fact that they weren't part of Europe, mm-hmm. didn't have to worry about the territorial disputes, didn't have to worry about the so-called balance of power, mm-hmm. didn't have to worry about a lot of the other things. Oh, they're the, completely the outside of the balance of power. Yeah, they they, there's no... There's no there's no insecurity there. And they were able to implicate Britain knowing what Britain's vulnerabilities were at the time. Yes, uh, but, but also understanding that it was in Britain's advantage, which is, yeah, it, it is essential for something like this. Of course. And, and, and I mean, that treaty was put into place specifically to never be used. Yeah. Which is, which is really, really interesting. And, and it's, also, it's also important to remember that at this point, Japan is already looking at the, the theory of sphere of influence in its own region because once again it's got this idea of superiority that's come out of it being the only country 
more or less un- unscathed by unfair treaties by by the West. Yes. So it's seeing itself as the the premier player in the region, which I don't think is is overly arrogant of them. I think that's fairly accurate, of, uh, you know, based on what's going on. But you know, to 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 an extent, there's 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 being the dominant power, and then there's being like the only power or the undisputed power. And I don't think it was that. But uh, you know, it, it was it was doing much better than any of its other neighbors. Of course, yeah, I mean, it, was, it was very much a regional context. Yeah, absolutely. And, but, and we'll see that, of course, when we when we look at how the Russo-Japanese War turned out. Yes, absolutely. Well, let's get into it. the The tensions mount over Port Arthur. They finally decide to, uh, you know, they, after after this treaty with Britain, there's this back and forth between Russia and Japan for a couple of years because J- Japan doesn't really feel ready to to declare war yet. But it's just stalling tactics on their part. And finally, war is declared by Japan on Russia. Interestingly enough, they actually attack the Russian Navy in the east about three hours before the declaration is made. Now, this is uh, several years before the Hague Convention, so it's not illegal. But Russia is just like floored by it. They've never heard of anyone doing anything like this before. Not to mention the strategic value of that, given that Russia has to split its fleet Mm -hmm. because... It has, you know, some portion of its navy that has to be deployed from St. Petersburg, mm-hmm. and then the other remaining portion of the navy, which is much smaller, which has been stationed on the east coast, yeah, uh, to protect Vladivostok and Port Arthur, etc. And, and it's essentially it's it's run as two navies because you have to, you know, it's it's they're 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 they're, they're a world apart, which we'll see yeah, well, I mean, when it takes nine months to sail from you know one side yeah, yeah. of your empire to the other, yeah. you're going to probably experience. Uh, some difficulty in coordinating those units together. Yeah, exactly. So there's some quick naval action within the Yellow uh, Sea and and uh, in the Pacific, just off of Vladivostok, and the Imperial Japanese Navy basically completely wipes out the Eastern Fleet. It's it, it's it's fairly decisive as far as naval battles go. Naval battles don't tend to be that decisive. They tend to be a lot of sound and fury and maybe a couple of lucky hits. Slightly more difficult uh, given the range that you're fighting at compared to. Uh, if you can hit like two percent accuracy, you're having a good day. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's also difficult to take uh, captives. Um, it's a lot easier to flee. Yeah. So tactics and strategy can be quite significantly different than fighting on land. Yeah. Now, you know, I I, I do want to note here, like the, the 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 Japanese military did tend to be fairly brutal when it came to war. They weren't great at keeping prisoners. In in this particular part of the engagement, generally in naval warfare, when you sink a ship, you help the survivors they did not there were other ships in the area that that saved some russian sailors but uh, you know you you get certain instances of the, of those sort of things happening and you know it's 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 just worth mentioning that that you know that that sort of thing did happen fairly often i once again you know hesitate to to make japan sound like a a perfect society because it's easy to feel that way when you see the reforms that they go through and how mm-hmm. how logical it seems and and they they were by no means perfect they had a, a lot of other issues going on there so it's also easier to conflate things like modernization with being progressive absolutely no i completely agree and those are two different two very different things and in my opinion two things that have happened very at, at very different paces in japanese society you know throughout its history anyways Basically, at this point, the Japanese or the the Russians had to take their entire Western fleet and sail it around because 
the Japanese managed to lock down Port Arthur and had started pushing Russian troops out. And there were nominal Russian troops there. There was nobody. The, the Russians don't keep troops in the east of Russia. There's nothing to guard there. Uh, so, you know, the, the land action was, you know, once they pushed the Russians out of Port Arthur... There wasn't a whole lot going on there. It was mostly fortification on mm-hmm. the, the, the part of the Japanese. So the Russians sailed all the way around. Um, it took about seven months. They had a little incident when they were sailing past or sailing through the English Channel where they thought some British fishing boats were Japanese targets and fired on them. And so the British wouldn't let them through Suez. Uh, so they had to go all, all the way around. The the way around. Hope. They went all the way around Cape of Good Hope. It took them seven months to get all the way around. And keeping in mind, of course, that this wasn't just the Navy. This was the Army being transported mm-hmm. via the Navy. Well, because the, 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 the railroad system in Russia was incomplete. Well, there were sections of the Trans-Siberian Railway that were just not there. hundreds of kilometers long with, yeah. with nothing. Yeah. yeah, absolutely nothing. So they sailed around, and they got there, and they were all poorly provisioned because they didn't see a lot of help on their journey. Their ships were slowed down. They were encrusted with barnacles. That's actually a major problem with the Navy. If your ship is dirty, if it's been encrusted, it slows your ships down significantly. The Japanese ships, on the other hand, were well-maintained, uh, well-provisioned. Basically, the Russian fleet showed up and the, the Japanese Navy obliterated them. There was a battle called the Battle of Tsushima, where the Japanese Navy crossed their T twice, which basically means, hey, we, we don't need to get into it, but all of your guns shoot the front of the other ships. And that's really, really bad for the other ships. So uh, Treaty of Portsmouth comes up September 5th, 1905, in which the Russians surrender to the Japanese. This is a huge deal. As you mentioned earlier, it's the first time in modern times that a non-European power has beaten a European power in war. Yeah. Completely embarrassed the Russians. Completely changed the world's perception of Japan on sort of a, a, an international level, on a global level. Because they had seen them doing very well, but you know, to think that they would beat Russia? No, that would never happen. Until it did, and they had to sort of just live with that new reality of a power in, in the Pacific, in the East, a non-European power, being that powerful. They can give them a run for their money now. If they can beat Russia, what other European powers can they beat? Yeah, and what's fundamentally really interesting about them um, going to war with Russia is that you've had two societies that uh, people would have probably viewed as, you know, again, scare quotes, backward. Yeah, absolutely. um, Going to war with one another. One, after going through a very sharp period of rapid industrialization, rapid modernization, Mm -hmm. which is, of course, Japan. And the other one going through this really long beleaguered process of attempting modification and then having to deal with internal strife um, and dealing with all sorts of like other logistical problems, which is Russia. Mm-hmm. And when they do ultimately go to war with one another, it's quite evident how effective you know the Meiji re- Restoration was yeah. in transforming Japan not only into a country that was capable of taking its own economic destiny into its own hands, mm-hmm. as it's done by, you know, asserting control over Korea and establishing a wider sphere of influence, but also in being able to take on powers well outside of its own traditional domain and going to war with a European power, albeit Russia. Yeah. And I mean, Russia was definitely a low watermark for 
for Europe, but that, that didn't matter. They saw when it came to dealing with things within Europe, that was the case. Anything outside of the West, there was the West and then there was everything else under it. There was no concept of anything actually breaking into that ranking list. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't love using wars as a measure for the progress of a society. But I think what's really important to take away from the Russo-Japanese War is that the world did. You know, I, th- I think a lot of the reforms that happened within Japan were, uh, were, were generally ignored by the rest of the world because it's a chain of islands off of China. Like, why do we even care what's going on over there? Until, you know, it, it beat a European power. Everything, you know, it, it, it threw off the entire balance of things in terms of the European worldview at that point in time. And I, I think it's worth noting, too, that it's it's not as though Russia was incompetent. Like, yeah, sure, they were. They, they didn't do great when compared to the rest of, of Europe, but they were by no means powerless, even on a even on a world level. It wasn't a super easy win. There were a lot of things that were in Japan's favor when it happened. Of course. And the fact that, it, that Russia suffered all the logistical problems that it did mm-hmm. is a really clear example of that. The fact as well that that Japan was able to effectively dictate the terms of the war as well. Yes. One, by starting it uh, with a surprise attack. Two, by ensuring that the decisive battles would be fought at sea, mm-hmm. not on land. Yep. Um, that shows very close to a complete um, control over the environment in which the war is waged, which is really quite important. Yeah. And, you know, Russia had a lot of... Uh, logistical problems, not the least of which being that its fleet was, you know, effectively two fleets. Mm-hmm. And when Russia does enter the First World War a decade later, it discovers at the Battle of Tannenberg mm-hmm. um, in the fall of 1914 that it really is in a similar state of disarray. You know, whether it's fighting Japan or Germany, the routing was quite similar. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Logistics are are absolutely key to warfare. But I mean, I you know, as a footnote, that that loss threw Russia into like a revolution, like a complete rebellion. There was a there was a major rebellion in uh, yeah the in Bloody Russia. Sunday, and then yeah. the concessions by Tsar uh, Nicholas uh, regarding the Duma. Uh, exactly. You know, those are you that, can't you can't overlook that. It's not as though those problems didn't exist before, but it's. Yeah, it's it's the same thing as the Boxer Rebellion. It's the same thing as so many other things. You know, there's this this blame of the initial issue on an outside uh, source, namely yep. losing to Japan, and and using that as a way to express the internal uh, issues that you have within your nation. Yeah, the incredible discontent that a lot of people are feeling. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, I think that more or less covers what I wanted to talk about in regards to the Meiji Restoration and just like the, the the amazing amount of progress and the amazing amount of development that the country went through in, you know, a 50-year period, which is such a short amount of time. Such a short amount of time. Was there anything you, you feel like we missed? Anything that you had questions on? Anything you wanted to add? No, I mean, I think we did a really good job of dealing with such a complex period of of, uh, of modern history so quickly, uh, particularly with the fact that, again, I know virtually nothing about Japanese society, mm-hmm. Japanese history. Yeah, um, it's I a mean, really complex uh, subject. But uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this probably wasn't message, uh, mentioned earlier, 
but I'm a Russianist by training. Mm-hmm. Um, so my knowledge of, of Japan, as you've probably been able to tell, has been largely framed through my knowledge of Russia. I which noticed is why you spoke, I, up, spoke up a little yeah, bit during the we, last little bit. If, if, you, <laughs> if you listen back to uh, you know the previous three sections, uh, I don't think I was nearly quite as talkative as I was when we started talking about uh, you know the Russo-Japanese War. Mm-hmm. Um, because, again, to me, that sort of like ties back all the incredible transformation that occurred in in, in, in Japan and, and sort of the implications of the Meiji, Restor- Meiji Restoration. Mm-hmm. It ties that into sort of like my sort of like framing of history, um, being able to connect it back to that is ultimately very important mm-hmm. because otherwise I'm just almost completely devoid of context. Sure. And and yeah, you, as we've said before, you know, you hesitate to frame the, the progress of the Meiji Restoration in uh, in Western terms, but at the same time, in, in, in terms of, a, you know, the, the global impact of it, you know, the recognition of Japan in 1905 by the other, you know, by the Western powers as a legitimate threat. And, and you know, th- th- that fear of Japan is is really a form of begrudging respect. It's a, it's a recognition of the fact that they've progressed as a society uh, to a point where not only are they effective, but they're so effective that the West can't even deny that through their Eurocentrism, which is, I think, pretty high praise considering that level of Eurocentrism going on at the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah, and I mean, you did make a point earlier where you said... Um, you're quite hesitant to attribute much to uh, evaluating the progress or or worth of a society based on its military accomplishments. Mm-hmm. I think that I, I'm completely in your camp. However, the really important thing to take from that is that it is a measure that can be used that is more or less objective. And war is a progr- uh, it, it, war is a projection of power. Yeah, it's a projection at, at of power. Its, at its heart. And, but, and... It's, but it's a projection of power that you can actually measure yeah. the inputs and outputs of, which allows people to come up with valuations, however mm-hmm. simple or complex, yep. that can assign somebody a worth. It's similar to the way um, that in the 21st century, we seemingly cannot escape the notion that a society's worth is tied to its gross domestic product. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there are ways of sort of challenging this. And I know that a couple of weeks ago, there was a, an organization that shared uh, data looking at uh, happiness scores. And, oh, I've seen stuff like that before. It's yeah. Really interesting and, stuff. And, and largely, that's something that a lot of people take quite seriously. A lot of people are skeptical of it. A lot of people outright laugh at it. But it's... The it, worth it, of a society is, is you know, that's that's decided by us. That's the same thing as... as Going back to the, the the measures of rice being the the measure of the the value of a of a han exactly, and and the, these these as soon as you start looking at things that can be even just interpolated as as subjective, mm-hmm. um, they lose meaning and they don't sort of uh, beget the same degree of respect that you would get by something very you know quote objective like brute military force or a gross domestic product. Mm-hmm. Um, for I think it's interesting that we're coming back to wrap up this discussion by looking at this particular point, because yeah. the notion of going from Japan's worth in you know rice production sure. to its worth as how it's seen by England and France and Russia and the United States mm-hmm. based on its perceived military 
um, ability, mm-hmm. reading, posturing, right? Sure. Is a remarkable shift in the way that Japan has decided to position itself and, of course, the way that Japan is going to view itself in the future. Absolutely. Um, which has significant implications for, you know, the First World War, but obviously much more so in the period following 1918. Yeah. Now, as much as I'd love to talk about that stuff, we don't have another, like, five hours to go over that period of history, unfortunately. So I think we'll have to call it there. Thank you so much for coming on today. I've really had a good time. Yeah, always a pleasure. In the time between 1868 and 1905, just 37 years, Japan underwent a complete transformation. Within a generation, it moved from a truly feudal society to a modern one easily on par with Western powers. No one had managed to break into that ranking for centuries before the radical Meiji Restoration. This paved the way for a complete paradigm shift in the West that would eventually see the end of the complete Western monopoly on world power, even if many of the former structures still remain in place. The success story of Japan's metamorphosis is nothing short of awe-inspiring. Next time on Nichai 101, we'll be talking about the Knights Templar. That episode will be up on June 1st. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.